Good morning. Great call. Those of you that move to the middle, those of you that are way on the edges, do not come complain to me afterwards that you could not see what I wrote, okay? I do not care. You were given warning. All right, so on uh, your chairs, when you sat down, hopefully there was a, a, a note card and a pencil, and you can pull that out at this time because now is the time where we're going to use this. We are going to do a little survey before we get into the main part of the sermon this morning. Um, this is a survey. I, I think survey is the right word for it. I was going to call it a quiz. I was going to say we're starting the sermon off with a quiz. But I'm not really even trying to ask you to give me the right answers. I'm trying to ask you to give me the answer. I'm going to give you four questions, and I want you to answer what you think the average American would say to these questions. So this is more family feud than it is Jeopardy, okay? So I'm going to give you four questions, and you tell me what you think like the average church-going person in our country would say um, when answering these questions. So on your card, in the bottom left-hand corner, I want you to write the letters C-U-S. And then, next to that, I want you to answer this question. If the church was a business, who are the customers? Okay? I realize the church is not a business. This is an analogy. Okay? If the church was a business, who are the customers? I want you to write that out here on this part of your sheet. Then, once you've guessed that, what does the average person think the customers are when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ? After you've gotten that, I want you to write above that E... M, P, and then out here, I want you to write who are the employees, okay? When it comes to the church, if church is a business, who are the employees? Um, you don't have to list their actual names. I just mean like across America, what does the average person think of? Like who does the role of employee um, in a church, okay? After you got that down, I want you to write above EMP. I want you to write M, A, N, and next to that, write out who's the manager, Okay, who's the supervisor? Who's the employer? Who's the person who is training and equipping the, per the people who are serving whoever it is that's being served and helped? Okay, so who's the manager? And then lastly, I want you to put O-W-N, and out here I want you to write who's the owner of the church. Who's the church? If the church was a business, who's the owner? I did not make up this uh, illustration, by the way. I got this from another pastor, so if you end up really liking it, I got this from, I read this in a book one time. So, um, you got your answers down? All right. I think that um, I know, a pr I think I have a pretty good answers to these questions, okay? Actually, I think I know the correct answers to these questions, but before I tell you that, I'm going to tell you what I think the average American churchgoer would say. I have been involved in church for a long time. Um, I don't know, I think I've been in ministry for a couple of decades. I've been at, this is my 12th year at this church. Talked to a lot of church people, and I think I'm, I can say with pretty good certainty that what I'm about to say is pretty close to what the average person would say. So, who is the customer of the church? I think most people would say that the answer to this would be the members of the church. Just like a country club has members, just like a uh, gym has members, so the people who are the members of the church are the customers. Some people might uh, specify the word, they might say the attenders of the church, even if they're not members, the people that are there. In, fa in fact, did you know the word attender is not even a word? Did you know that it's supposed to be attendee? Yeah. I don't like that. I'm writing down attender. Because that sounds right. Um, but I know 2% of you, that's really going to bother you, and, and I, I am willing to take that risk. Okay, so members and attenders. I think there are a lot of people who say that's who the customers are of the church. That the people who show up on Sunday mornings, particularly the members, they, the members are to the church what clients are to an accounting firm, what patients are to a hospital, right? That's who the customers are. Well, then who are the employees? I think most people would say, well, the staff, 
That's the employees, the people that work there. And it depends on the size of your church, what you would write here. If it's a small church, there might just be one person. It's just pastor, right? Um, but if it's a larger church, this might be pastor, youth pastor, children's minister, janitor, you know, whatever, okay? But you write down the people who are the employees of the church. So then who's the manager? Now, at this point, I think there is um, a quite a bit of like, Divergence, a lot of different, like a lot of different answers that are going to come up for the average American because it's going to depend quite a lot on uh, the way you grew up. The tradition that you grew up in is going to have a whole lot to do with who you think is um, sort of in charge. So, so some of you maybe grew up in a tradition where when you hear, when you think through this, the first thing you think of for manager would be the elders, right? The elders of the church. That's the people that manage it. Although there are other of you, others of you that grew up in a different, like a whole different tradition or a whole different denomination and you would have used the word deacons, right? And you would say, no, I think it's the deacons um, that are in charge and they're doing that. And there may be some of you that grew up in churches that had elders, but no deacons. Some of you might have grown up in a church that had deacons, but no elders. Some of you might have grown up in a church that had elders and deacons and they had different jobs. Some of you might have grown up in a church that didn't have either one. Some of you might go, all of that's irrelevant because that's not even the right answer. It's the pastor, right? And this would show that you probably um, have, have experience with larger churches. So there's a staff and then there's a person over the staff called the pastor. And the pastor is the person who is the managing the staff. And then there may be some of you who grew up in other traditions and you would say, no, no, the pastor is one of the employees. And then there's a level above him that's called, and it might be called the presbytery. It might be called the diocese. Um, it might be called the synod. But this is the layer that's above that person. If actually diocese, I don't even think it's the perfect word because that's a, a district. And so the person that's in charge of the diocese, I believe, is a bishop. So maybe you'd write the word bishop here, but there's somebody, whatever. There's bishops, there's presbyteries, there's synods. There, there are the, there's this level that's above the pastor and they're the ones that make sure that he and the other people are doing what they're doing and sort of to reach the people. Um, and then... I think there's a lot of agreement um, on the owner. I think quite a few people will say, and God is the owner, okay? Maybe if you're an atheist, you would not write that, but I'm just saying your average churchgoer, I think they would say, it's God's church, right? God is the owner. Um, I, I did this in the first service, and there was a little kid right there that went, yes, I got one right, okay? <laughs> so um, how'd I do? Um, is this pretty close? Right? Do you think this is pretty close to what the average American would say when they think of, okay, well, who, if the church were a business, this is pretty much the way it runs. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you what I believe the Bible gives as the answers to these questions. Okay, so let me, this was not perfect, but here we go. Over here on this half of the board, I want to write for you what I think the Bible teaches the way that a church is actually structured. But before I write it, I want to show it to you in the scriptures. So today, our passage that we're going to look at, at least the first one, um, is Ephesians chapter 4, where we're going to read to you verses 11 and 12. And I believe Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 will give us answers. I mean, I realize it's just an analogy, but the answer is as to what, how, how the church is structured. And I'm hoping that this verse, it's two verses really, I'm hoping that these two verses sound very familiar to you because I just preached on them two weeks ago. So I'm hoping as I read this, you go, oh yeah, this is the thing he said two weeks ago. So I'm going to re-bring up the verse from two weeks ago. Hopefully it's very familiar to you, and then we'll be able to apply it to our, to our board. So here we are, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says, and he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the, well now what's the word? Work, in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. You guys remember that verse? Right, remember from two weeks ago, those of you who were here? Okay, so 
Who is the he? Anybody remember who the he is? He personally gave some to be apostles. Anybody remember? Okay, yes, Jesus is the answer. If you look um, earlier on that paragraph, you'll see that it is Jesus is the one who has given to the church the people who are supposed to equip the people who are supposed to do the work of ministry. Okay, that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who has the authority over the church. He started the whole thing. Jesus is the owner. This passage, I think, implies that when it has him as the one who sets up the rest of the chart. Um, but it doesn't have to be implied. It's also just flat out said in the Bible. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, I believe it said, Jesus is the head of all things the church. Uh, I think a verse that I read to you a couple of weeks ago when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's Jesus' church, right? Um, and, and that's fantastic because those of you who believe in the Trinity are going, okay, good, I got it right, right? So Jesus is God, right? If you're, if you're Trinitarian, as I am, as this church is, then you go, whew, we got that one right. So Jesus is God, so yes, we got that correct. Um, and in fact, um, I guess I didn't have to specify this, but the reason I like to do it is there are people that believe in God that don't believe in Jesus, right? But there's not, you, if you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. So I think sometimes it's helpful to just specify who it is that we're talking about here. So the owner of the church, the person who started it, the person who like, owns the church is Jesus Christ, okay? Son of God. Now, who are the managers? Who did he put in charge? Who did he appoint? According to the verse, it says, he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So he gives five nouns there in that verse, right? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers. Who are these five nouns referring to? And the answer, I mean, the kind of the simple answer would be, those were all leaders in the church at the time that this was written. So if I were to pick one word that was sort of to encapsulate all five of those words, I would write the word leaders here, okay? There are leaders that, that Jesus has appointed for his church. All of those words would have been offices, titles, like kinds of people that existed at the time who were leaders in the church. So we look at the first one, apostles. Apostles would have been like the tippy top leaders at the time. This would be people like Peter and John and Paul. These are people who would kind of have the most authority because these were people who were taught directly by Jesus. They were quoting Jesus. They were ambassadors for Jesus and speaking his words with his authority. They wrote books of the New Testament, right? So that would be the apostles. The next group that's referred to is the prophets, okay? Another group of leaders in the church. The prophets would prophesy, and I will let you know, at least nowadays in the year 2023, there are Christians who like disagree on whether prophets still exist now or if that was just a thing back then, right? I'm not even going to weigh into that debate for this sermon. I'm just going to point out that at the time this was written, certainly they existed, right? Philip's daughters were prophesying at this point. At Acts, the book of Acts says that. There was a guy named Agabus who was a prophet. He was going around and saying things like, there's going to be a famine next year, and there was. Okay, so there were prophets at this point. So God gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave evangelists. Evangelists would be someone who goes and preaches the gospel to someone who doesn't know it, right? Announces the good news to people. And then you have pastors and teachers. The word pastor there is a word that everywhere else in the Bible, it's translated shepherd, okay? So it's just, it's a word that refers to a person who like cares for a flock. And then the word teachers is, I think, self-explanatory. So you have these different types of leaders, preachers and evangelists and teachers and, you know, whoever. And you have these leaders that Jesus has appointed. Now, what has he done with them? It says he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry. So according to this verse, what's supposed to be on this line? Who's supposed to do the work? It is the saints. Now that's interesting. What does the word saints mean? Now we learned this verse two weeks ago, so it would warm my heart if somebody here remembered what I taught two weeks ago. What are saints? 
Okay, yes, holy ones, that's how, very good, you remembered the translation, that's very good, holy ones. What else did we say? What is the word saints used? When they use the word holy ones, what were they trying to describe back then? Yes, believers, regular Christians. So, the word means holy ones, it's referring to people who believe in Jesus Christ, so they've been forgiven of their sins, they've been declared righteous, they are the holy ones now, they are people who believe in Jesus. It's just regular Christians. I know that in our culture, the word saints is most often used to mean super spiritual dead person, but that is not the way the word is being used here. Clearly they are being trained to do work, you never do that with dead people. All right, so this is, this is, if you look throughout the New Testament, you will see that's the way the word saints is used most often. Maybe it's every time, but if it's not every time, it's most of the time. Saints is a word that means regular Christians, they believe in Jesus, okay? They are set apart for Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and write here next to the word saints, the word members, or the word Christians, because that is the words that we use most of the time. We most usually don't, we don't use the word saints the way they did. We mostly use, would use a word like members or Christians. Those are the people that the Bible says the leaders of the church are equipping to do the work of ministry. Well, who are they supposed to be serving? Who is it that they, who, who's, like, who are they doing this work for? Now look at the verse. It says, for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to build up the body of Christ. Well, that phrase, the body of Christ, is a phrase that would refer to Christians. Okay? It's used throughout the New Testament to refer to like the congregation. So Jesus is the head of the body. The body is his people. And so the people who are the customers would be Christians, right? The body of Christ, fellow believers. And then I'm going to add another word here that is not said in this verse, but it is taught in other places in the New Testament. So I think it's important for us to do it. I'm going to write, and non-Christians. This particular verse doesn't specify the role that we have in the life of non-Christians, but the New Testament does in other places. So we're supposed to serve the body of Christ and build it up. We are also supposed to reach people who do not know Jesus yet. Um, One of the places that it says this, and I read this verse to you, I think it was two weeks ago, where Jesus said, "Um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't know if you remember, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's definitely the owner. And then he said, go and make disciples of all nations. You remember that? Now, at this point, to say, go and make disciples of all nations, that would have been a reference to go and turn people into Christians who are not Christians. That would have been go reach unbelievers. You want to know why? Because at that point, all nations, actually none of the nations outside of Israel, had even heard about Jesus and Christianity and all this. Right Nowadays, we think, well, there's Christians all over the nations. There wasn't at the time. At the time, Jesus said, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. At that point, the number of disciples, the number of people who were following Jesus was like about 500 people in the whole world. Okay, And then it spread from there. But at this point, nobody in any of the nations knows Jesus yet. And that's where he says, go and reach. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? These are people that are not in. Get them in. And teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So we know that Jesus believed that that's what his church was to do. Also, two, no, it was three weeks ago, um, I, read, I read to you the story, the, the parable of the lost sheep. Do you remember that? So the lost sheep is there, and Jesus tells the story of the shepherd, and he leaves the 99 in the open country, and he goes finds the one lost sheep, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he comes home, and they throw a party. Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And Jesus says, that's what God the Father is like. He said, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. So clearly, when we take in the whole New Testament, we know this is Christians and non-Christians. So we completed our chart. Here we go. 
we have for you right here one column that is what the typical American believes. And then we have what the Bible teaches. And this is what I want you to see. These are two different mindsets. And these two different mindsets will bring about two completely different churches. Do you understand that? If you have a group of 500 people who believe this, and across the street from them, you have another group of 500 people who believe this, those two churches are not going to be the same. Their policies, their practices, their behavior, their church culture, it's going to be very different. These two mindsets will bring about two very different churches. Now, why is that? Where's the major difference? And so I want you to notice, first of all, let me point out where the major differences are not. When you look at what your average American believes, and when you look at what the Bible says, when it comes to customer, they weren't that far off, right? It wasn't so bad. Right? The average person says it's the members and the attenders. Well, members, for the most part, are Christians, people that believe in Jesus, right? And I think a lot of people even understand that there are people who attend churches who are not Christians yet. They're just attending and listening, right? So the average person in America's guess about the customer is not that far off. Not bad. And like I said, if you believe the Trinity, if you understand that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, if you understand that, then the average person, when they say it's Jesus' church or it's God's church, that's fine. They got that one right too, Right? America's not doing so bad, right? And then manager. Now you look at manager, and at first this looks crazy different, but when you think about it, this is not actually that far off. Even if you call them elders or deacons or pastor or you have a presbytery or synod or whatever, you're still acknowledging that there is a group of people who are supposed to, maybe they've been Christians longer, maybe they're more mature, maybe they have a particular kind of gifting, but they are the ones who are supposed to watch out over, equip, train, disciple the people that are under them. That is understood in our culture. So where's the big divide? Ah, here it is. This line right here, that is where what your average American believes is so different than what the Bible says that it creates a different kind of church when it's believed. Whose job is it to accomplish the mission of the church? Not the staff, the members. And if you have a church out there that believes that 1% of the body is supposed to be accomplishing the mission of the church. It's going to be totally different than a congregation that believes 100% of the body is supposed to be accomplishing the mission of the church. Now, there may be an objection here. There may be somebody that goes, well, wait a minute, Mario, this is a little confusing. Because um, I look at your chart and I see myself on it twice. I'm a Christian and I live here in Ocala and I'm a part of Good News Church. And I notice that you have Christian right here under employee, and then you also have it over here under customer. So it seems to me that I'm both an employee and a customer in this analogy. Well done, okay? You, you read the chart correctly. I am so proud of you for coming to that conclusion. You are exactly right, okay? In this analogy, there are many people in this room that would be both employees and customers, right? You have the responsibility to use your gifts to serve other people, and you have the privilege of other people serving and caring for you, right? So that is true. You are both an employee and a customer. That's very good. But, <laughs> and this is a big but, when you are on staff somewhere, when you realize, okay, I work here, and it's a place that you're also a customer. Have any of you been in this situation? Have any of you had a job where you were both a customer and an employee of the same place? Okay, I have. So here's the question. What did you think of yourself as primarily when you were in that situation? An employee, right? 
I mean, that was for me. I worked at Publix when I was in high school and in college. I worked there. I bagged groceries. I was a cashier. I stocked shelves. Like, I was definitely an employee. But it was also the place that I bought my strawberry yogurt, right? And I'm very thankful that I was able to go in there, just change, you know, just give them a few dollars. So wonderful. And so I was definitely a customer and an employee. But during that time in my life, I, pr- I didn't think of it primarily as yogurt place that serves me. Like, I primarily thought of it as this is the place that I work, right? In fact, can you imagine if you went to a Publix and all of the employees that were there thought of themselves as pr- primarily as customers? Imagine if you walked in the grocery store and all the other employees thought of themselves primarily as a fellow customer with you, and when they heard the word employee, they immediately assumed, like, they've got to be talking about the managers, what would that be like? It would not be a pleasure. Is that right? No. In fact, some of you, you know what it'd be like because you've been to a bad grocery store. Have you ever been to a bad grocery store? Right? And you show up and there's somebody that's there, you're in the produce section and they have a uniform on. They sure look like they work there. And you walk up and you say, excuse me, maybe they have their back to you. Excuse me, uh, what aisle are the olives on? And then some sullen teenager turns around. Can't you see that I was staring at these oranges? I'll get to it in a minute, right? Like, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, what? I'm sorry, I'll go ask someone who works here, right? And then you realize, wait, but you do. Like, isn't that weird? Haven't you been in that situation? I guess what I'm trying to say is the church of Jesus Christ will not accomplish its mission as long as 99% of the people involved don't realize that they're supposed to be in on the job. We cannot be content with having a small group of special people trying to meet the needs of a group of religious consumers while the rest of the world is out there dying. Right? So, my alternate, uh, my alternate title for this sermon could have been Congratulations, You Work Here. congratulations, you're a minister. And if you're someone who realizes that, you go, okay, yeah, that is what the Bible says. I agree. I, I agree. I'm on this line. I should have thought of that. I'm glad, I'm glad I now know. Now, what do I do, Mario? How do I minister? Well, that's great. I'm so glad you asked because that's my job. Like as one of the leaders here, I'm supposed to train and equip you in order for you to be able to minister to the people God's called you to do. And so I'm going to try to do that for the rest of the sermon. For the rest of the sermon, I'm going to try to answer that question. How do I minister? I cannot say everything that could be said about the topic, but I can say enough that you can get a really good running start. The thing that I'm about to tell you is not everything, but man, the two categories of ministry I'm about to explain to you, once you understand them, it is really going to help you in figuring out what you need to do next and what you need to do next as you serve God. So let's go ahead and get a new piece of paper. And I want to give you two terms, okay? These are two terms that I made up, as far as I know. I've never heard anybody else use them, and maybe this concept is called something else at some other church. But this is what, these are the words that I use whenever I refer to this. There is formal ministry, and then there is informal ministry. And I want to explain the difference between these two things and explain why they're both so essential. Okay, there's formal ministry and informal ministry. When I say formal ministry... I do not mean uh, like ministry in a tuxedo, ministry in a ball gown. And when I say informal ministry, I do not mean like serving God, you know, in a yoga pants or tank top. 
I, when I say formal ministry, I'm referring to structured ministry. Multiple people involved, organized together into a group. This is your job, this is my job, this is her job. Okay, and together we are organized into a system. There are leaders, there is training, there are policies. This is the way we do it. This is the way the system works. When I say informal ministry, I just mean not structured, not connected to a system, no titles, no supervisor, no handbook, no rules. Okay, let me give you some examples. You might go, what does, that, what does that look like in real life? Okay, when it comes to formal ministry, formal ministry would be when you show up, let's say you um, volunteer for the Women's Pregnancy Center here in town. Okay, Women's Pregnancy Center is a Christian ministry on, the, on Silver Springs Boulevard. If you show up there, you will notice it's a formal ministry. Meaning, it, there's, it's not like there's just a warehouse of pregnant ladies and they just say, go in there and help them, okay? It's a place that helps women in crisis pregnancies and there will be a person that's in charge and there will be a schedule and there will be a policy and there will be a system and there will be training. And then after you do the training, you will have a title, like client advocate, I think is what they're called, right? And you will do the things the way they do them. If you were to volunteer at Royal Family Kids Camp, which you will have the opportunity to do next week, because we're going to talk about that here. Royal Family Kids Camp. If you show up um, and you want to volunteer for Royal Family Kids Camp, you will notice it is a formal ministry. They do not show up at a campground with a bunch of kids in foster care and just say, be nice to them. Okay? So Royal Family Kids Camp is a camp that our church sponsors for kids in um, foster care. And if you, if you volunteer, you're going to notice there's a structure and there's a person in charge and there's a training that you have to go to. And there's a title that you will get once you go through the training called counselor. And there is a program that, that will be put on and you will be part of doing that. Um, if you are someone who volunteers here at this church, let's say you volunteer in Kid Zone, you will notice it is a formal ministry. There's a person in charge. There's a schedule. There are classrooms. There are age breakdowns. There's curriculum, right? And they will say, hey, will you help us teach the kids about Jesus? That's formal ministry. Okay, got that, Mario. Then what in the world is informal ministry? Ah, informal ministry is something like this. You're at work, and the person in the next office over is having a very bad day. His eyes are watery, and you never see him being emotional at all. And so you step out in the hallway for a second, peek in, and you go, are you all right? And he says, I am not all right. My father just died yesterday, and I don't know what to do. I don't know, I don't know how to tell my kids. I didn't tell them last night when I got home. I just didn't have, I don't, they're going to be devastated, and I don't know how to phrase it. And what if they ask, where is grandpa? And I just, I don't even know what to say to them. And I don't know how to do the next steps. I don't know how to plan a funeral. I don't, I'm, I feel very overwhelmed at the things that are required of me over the next two weeks. And at his passing, it was sort of a wake-up call for me because I've been thinking about it a lot. And so he, he died and I didn't particularly like him. And I'm feeling guilty about that. I'm, guilty, I'm feeling guilty that my dad died and I'm not super sad about it. And I'm also feeling, as much as I didn't like him, I'm, I'm looking at my life now and I'm noticing that I am going down the same path as him. Even though I don't particularly like him, I'm becoming like him. And I just don't even know what to do. Like I, it started yesterday, I realized like 20 or 30 years from now, I'm going to be a dead guy whose kids don't like him. And I just, I don't know what to do about any of this. And imagine there you are. And you go, okay, I am here for you. I will help you through this. I will help you figure out what you got to say to your kids. After work, when we're done here, like we can talk about what you should say. You can practice it on me. I will help you, like I will go to the funeral home and sit there next to you if you want as you're making the decisions and try to help you through it. 
And as far as you not becoming like your dad, I would love to invite you to my community group and I would love to share with you some things about God because I think that you kind of don't have any chance to not become like your dad unless God comes into your life and changes the direction you're going in. At least that's what happened to me. I was certain to follow down the same things my parents did if it weren't for me coming to know God. I would love to share that with you. Okay, now you see, can you imagine that? Now this is, what, this is so important for you to get. That is ministry. Even though there's no program for it, even though the person doesn't have a title, even though there's no rules, there's no structure, there's no system, there's no help the sad guy in the next office over program at your church. But that's ministry, right? And I think it's really important for us to recognize both of these things as ministry because they're both essential. And I think the average person, probably even in this church, leans one way or the other. Most of you in this room are going to think one of these is like, I got to do that. And the other one you neglect more. I just, and maybe it's based on personality or the way you grew up. I don't know. But I think a lot of us do that. There are some of you that when you think, fact, when you hear the word serving God or when you hear ministry, this is the only thing you think of. Some of you grew up where that's just, whenever people talk about ministry, they, that's the word that meant like we need more volunteers for something. And so when someone said, you need to get involved in ministry again, you went, yeah, I need to help out with the Iwana program like I used to. I need to help out in kids' zone or start a Bible study or become a youth leader again or whatever it is I was, I was doing last time I was doing ministry, right? And that's fine. That's good, right? And then there are some of you that are over here. And when you, when you hear ministry, that's not what you think of. In fact, you're the kind of person that you're like, I do not need to be involved in organized religion and I, don't need to, I certainly don't need people telling me what to do, okay? Like I know how to serve God. And maybe you resonate like with stories like the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan would have been in formal ministry, wouldn't it have been, right? If you don't know that story, the part of the story I'm referring to is there's a guy walking down the road and there's a half-dead guy on the side of the road and he picks up the half-dead guy and he nurses him back to health. And the reason he did that is why? Because he was informally ministering to the guy. The church did not send people out on an official program. Here's our walk down the road and find half-dead people program, right? That's not what happened. He just was walking and he saw the guy needed help, so he helped him. Right? That would be informal ministry. And there's some of you who go, that's what I need. I do not need to be at a team at church. Someone's going to hand me a handbook and rules. Ugh. No, I will just help people as I see them dying. That's what I will do. Okay, and what I'm saying is that's great. Both of these are great. And you really should consider both of them because to just do one of them... Okay, let me, the, the, good side of the, the good thing about formal ministry is, and the reason why many of you are going to be gravitating toward it, is because it's a proven formula. There's a system in place before you showed up. So... You just work, like, you, it's, it's already working before you got there. So you can just go up to the people and you say, hey, what can I do to help? And they will go, oh, here's what you can do to help. And they will plug you into the system. That's great. And there are lots of you that want to be involved in that. And this one is good because there are times when we're called to just do things and there's not a formal program for it. But the, if you only think of one of these or only do one of these, I think you're going to have a problem. Because if you think of serving God as only this, When the opportunity arises for you to be a good Samaritan, you're going to miss it because there wasn't a program for it. Nobody told you to do it. You're going to miss your opportunity to be the good Samaritan. But if you're over here going, no, that's all I do, <laughs> what this means is you're never going to accomplish anything that requires multiple people in on it in order to accomplish it. Like there are some things that you cannot accomplish alone. There are certain things God has called us to that cannot be accomplished unless multiple people organize together. And you'll never do that kind of thing that God's called you to do when you go, I'm going to do everything all by myself. 
Both kinds of ministry are so essential. And before I tell you any more about that, let me go ahead and show you some examples of these in the Bible. Because, I mean, I guess any preacher could just make up some words and throw them on a whiteboard and define stuff. I want you to see that this is real. This is really in the scriptures. And it's really in reality. Like it exists nowadays. And it goes all the way back to the time of the New Testament. So let me show you an example in the Bible of informal ministry. We're going to look at Acts chapter 18. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 18. Let me read you the passage. Pay close attention to the story. A Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was powerful in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him home. Now pay attention to this. What did they do? They took him home and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers wrote to the disciples, urging them to welcome him. After he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. What does the story show us? I want you to notice there's a guy named Apollos. Apollos is a pretty good preacher. Passage calls him an eloquent man. He shows up and he does a great job talking about Jesus. However, he is missing some information, right? According to the passage, he needed to be explained the way of God more accurately. So he's doing a good job. He's just missing some information. So Priscilla and Aquila are there. Priscilla and Aquila seem to be people who have been Christians longer than him. They know more than him. And they're there and he's preaching and they're sitting there going, this guy's good. This guy's got some potential, but he's missing something. There's a thing he doesn't know. And we know the thing that he doesn't know. So what did they do? This is so powerful to me. Look at what they did. They did not start a seminary. They did not start a formal ministry. They did not start a class and a system. And here's how we train the people. They just took him aside and gave him the information he was missing. Right? They informally trained him. And then look what happens. Verse 27. When he wanted to cross over to this other area, the brothers wrote to the disciples, urging them to welcome him. And after he arrived in the new city, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. I think what this is saying is the informal education that Priscilla and Aquila gave to Apollos made him an even better minister than he was before. And nobody started a program. All right, well then what's formal ministry? Is that something really in the Bible? Yes, I think it's in the same book. We're going to go to Acts chapter 6 for this one. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read you the first four verses. This is just a few pages earlier in the same story. It says this, In those days... As the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the... Now, what's the next two words? The daily distribution. You said that like you weren't sure. It's literally on the screen, okay? (laughs) They were being overlooked in the daily distribution... Then the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. So the fact that there's a daily distribution to me shows me this is a formal ministry, right? There's a system in place at this point. There were widows in Jerusalem. That's where this takes place. I can't remember if the story said Jerusalem and what I read to you or not. No, it didn't. But anyway, it's in. They're in Jerusalem. And um, so there apparently are women there whose husbands have died and they're having a hard time making it. 
So what does the church do? The church apparently started a formal ministry. It wasn't informal. It wasn't people just walked around the streets looking for widows that looked hungry and then just randomly helped them. No, there was a formal ministry called the daily distribution. I don't know if they were giving food or if they were giving money, but they were taking care of the widows somehow with this daily thing. It's a system. And the system was done by a group of 12 people. You can tell by the way it says the 12. They were preaching and teaching and they were also caring for these widows with this daily distribution. But there was a problem with the system, right? The formal ministry had an issue. What was it? There was a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Hellenistic is the word meaning these are the Jewish people that were from Grecian areas. They Greek-speaking people from Greek cultures. They probably did a lot of things differently than the Hebraic Jews, which would have been local Israelites. It looks like the system that was in place was not serving them equally. There was some sort of ethnic, racist, whatever, cultural problem here where someone was going, whoa, like this lady who speaks Hebrew got extra food and this lady who speaks Greek got nothing. What's going on here, right? Now, what's the solution to the problem? What's interesting is we have a formal ministry that's not as good as it needs to be. And what do they do to fix it? The solution wasn't to make it more informal. They didn't say, well, let's just go back to when people just walked around town and looked for people almost dying on the side of the road and helped them. No, they said, let's make it more formal. We got the system in place. Let's get more people involved. Let's split it into two departments. We're going to have 12 people that are in the preaching and prayer department, and we're going to have seven people that are in the take caring the widows department, right? We're going to make this more structured. Are you seeing it? And then if you keep reading the chapter, which is not going to come up there, what you'll see is that is what they did, and things got better because they made it more structured. Now, one more verse I want to read to you, and I just want to put this one in. I, I'm assuming that you probably believe me by now that these are real things, but I, I want to put in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Um, I believe it's verse 16, because this is one of those places in the Bible where you will find formal ministry and informal ministry in the same sentence. Where else can you get that? Okay, we got to read it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16. It says this, If any believing woman has widows in her family... She should help them, and the church should not be burdened so that it can help those who are genuinely widows. So what we see here is, well, first of all, do you see it? Do you, do, do, do you, are you catching the formal ministry and the informal ministry all in the same verse? What we have here is a church that has a formal ministry of caring for the widows. It's very similar to this passage right here. This passage took place in Jerusalem. The passage I just read to you took place in Ephesus. So they're not the same program, but it looks like they're very similar. It looks like what they were doing in Ephesus was quite similar to what they were doing in Jerusalem. They're taking care of the widows. I don't know, it's like a soup kitchen or what, but somehow they're helping these people who are, they don't have a husband or anybody to take care of them in their culture, vulnerable to poverty in their culture. Paul says in the midst of that, if any believing woman has widows in her family, she should help them. In other words, if you've got a Christian woman in your church and she's got widows in her family, she's got an aunt who lost her husband and now she's going, I don't know what to do. If you've got someone in your church and her grandma doesn't have any way to eat now because grandpa died. This is what Paul says. Paul says, if that's the situation, this is what the, the woman believer in your church who has grandma who's going, but grandma sure looks hungry. What is she supposed to do? According to the verse, she's supposed to help grandma, right? So that what? So that the church can help those who are genuinely widows, which, and I think that's a phrase meaning to help the widows who are starving, who don't have a granddaughter who can look out for them. So what's supposed to happen in this situation, Paul is saying is, hey, if you're there and you're the granddaughter and your grandma's hungry and you have the means to help her, don't say to her, oh man, it stinks that you got no food and I got a lot. Um, but the church has a soup kitchen you could go to. No, the passage is saying, no, you help her 
so that the soup kitchen has enough soup for all the people who don't have grand- granddaughters that are going to look out for them. In other words, I mean, you're sensible people. Tell me if, you, if this is right. He's saying, do as much informal ministry as you can so that you don't overburden the formal ministry of the church. Do you see it? Isn't this helpful? Like, isn't it so helpful to be able to think in these categories? So is caring for my grandma ministry? Yes. Is volunteering at the soup kitchen or volunteering at Interfaith to help feed hungry people, is that ministry? Yes. Formal ministry is essential because you cannot have everybody just going off all the time, always doing their own thing. There are things that God has called us to do that can only be accomplished with an organized team. You don't have all the resources and all the giftings and all the different traits in order to do everything everybody needs. There are certain things God has called us to do that require an organized team to pull it off. And informal ministry is so essential because much of what God has called us to do is ministry that you just have to do without anybody supervising you, without anybody telling you to do it, without any set of rules and policies. Some of you just need to care for the people in your life and you need to be like Priscilla and Aquila, like you see a person and the person is missing some information and you have the information. What do you do? You tell them, this is the thing you don't know. But once you know it, man, this is going to be so good. Some of you need to serve somebody and you don't have to start a whole serving ministry. Like there's a person that goes, oh, I don't have anyone to clean it. I, I don't even know what to do. I can't, and we need to have somebody that will set it up. I wish there would be someone that could lift this. I can't even lift this thing. You don't have to start a whole formal program in your church. We're the people who lift stuff for people program. Like just lift it for her, Right? Some of you, you just need to give money to someone. You don't have to get involved in some big thing. Like there's just somebody that needs some money and you can help them. There's some of you that need to rebuke someone, right? And you do not need to start a whole rebuker's ministry, right? You just need to say to them, hey, that's not okay. And that's all. Some of you need to encourage someone, right? And you don't need to start a whole encourager's ministry. You just need to say that person, I know it's hard, but keep going, brother. You are doing well. There are going to be so many times in your life where you're going to have to care for the people in your life and there won't be an official program for it, but it'll be your responsibility to do it because you're the one there. So here's my application for this morning if you haven't gotten it. Okay, if you're a Christian, here's the application. I'm going to combine the first half of the sermon and the second half of the sermon and sum it all up. Since you are one of Jesus' employees, serve him informal and informal ways. That's the application of the sermon. Join a team of people and work with your brothers and sisters together for the cause of Christ. I mean, honestly, at this particular church, I would say one of our pressing needs is KidZone. We have not been able to offer KidZone up to fifth grade for quite a while now. We just need more KidZone workers. It would be fantastic if some of you have the gifts in that area. We would love for you to help us out. But while you are helping people out and joining a team that's organized... Do not forget about informal ministry. Don't forget to minister to your families and your classmates and your teammates and your coworkers, or maybe it's your neighbors or vulnerable people that you know that need your help or lonely people that just need a word or two from you or maybe people who don't know Jesus yet and they need to hear the gospel. 
In fact, most of the ministry of Good News Church is probably going to need to happen outside of this building. Did you know that? You want to know why? Because that's where the world is. Like at some point it dawned on me, 99.99% of the world is outside of this building. And and well-run Sunday morning services will not change the world. Unless they teach their people to go out there and change the world. And, and even then, it won't happen. <laughs> even then, it won't happen the way it ought to. Even then, it won't. If everyone just goes, we're going to go out and change the world. Even then, it's not going to happen the way God wants it to unless those people are in relationship with God through Jesus. It is very important that the world changers that go out there and make a difference have to be people who are in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It cannot be, well, I'm just going to go do good things and I don't need to know about any God and I don't need to repent and I don't need God to forgive me of my sins. I'm just going to go do good stuff in the world, right? No, this idea that, God, I'm going to improve your world while remaining your enemy is not a good idea. I'll fix your world while I stay an enemy of you. No, that can't be. There has to be a reconciliation and a forgiveness of sins before you go and try to fix his world. So the people that go out there have to be people who are in relationship with God through Jesus, and they have to be people who are serving God in reaction to his mercy. Not in order to gain his mercy, but in reaction to the mercy he's already shown them. The the world changers have to go out, and they can't be people who are going, okay, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be so good, I'm going to go out there and do all these good things and help old ladies and help all these sorts of people, okay, and, and I'm going to do it so that you love me, God, so that you will forgive me so that you will think I'm good, so that you will accept me. God, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do all these good things. I just want, I hope you're noticing because you're going to be so impressed. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to be so holy. Are you noticing? Are you noticing what I'm doing? Are you noticing how good I'm being? Because I'm being so good. I hope you're impressed. I'm telling you, if you live your life going out there trying to change the world in order to get God to accept you, it's going to exhaust you. (laughs) The one who created the universe with words and you're going to go out there and, and get him to be impressed with you. Like, that's not going to happen. And so if it's the I'm going to get him to like me thing, that you are going to burn out. But if you are someone in relationship with God through Jesus, serving God in reaction to the grace and the acceptance he's already given you, and you are empowered by his spirit, then you will be able to do what he's called you to do. And I just want you to imagine, what if hundreds of us did that? What if hundreds of us who are reconciled to God the Father, serving in reaction to his grace and empowered by his spirit, use our gifts to serve this county in informal and informal ways? What would it be like? And imagine all the other Christians in town did it too. We would change our corner of the world, wouldn't we? Many of you in this room are already doing this. And so I say to you, good job. Keep up the good work. And then to the rest of you, I say this, love Jesus and serve him in structured and in unstructured ways. Let's pray. God, what an honor and a privilege it is to be able to say this out loud. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to, to teach this message.
I pray that you would do a work among us. I've been praying this since this early this morning. I pray that you would flip the switch in our heads that makes us go from customer to staff. Like that we would, there's that mindset of like, I'm here for, to be served. And then there's something that happens. I know what happened to me. I know what's happened to a lot of people where the, the, the switch just gets flipped and they go, no, I'm here to serve. And it's so cool that other people care about me, but I'm here to serve. I pray that you would switch that flip, in, uh, flip that switch in people's mind and, and change us as a church, conform us, make us more like the kind of church you want us to be. And I pray the same thing about the other switch, the like formal and informal ministry. I feel like there's a lot of people that before they know that, they don't know. They're just, they're trying to serve you. But then when they realize, oh, okay, I get this. This is an informal thing and it counts. It's real ministry. And this is a formal thing and I need to do it. I can't just avoid all of my brothers and sisters and never work alongside of them. And so I pray that you would flip that switch and we would be people who formally and informally serve you. And I especially pray about the stuff I said at the end. I pray that we would not have a bunch of people go out from this building and go, I'll just change the world and who cares about my relationship with God or why I'm doing it. I pray that you would save some people this morning so that they would go out as a saved person ministering for you in reaction to the fact that you've already loved them. I pray you'd empower us by your spirit so that we will not burn out, but we will do what you've called us to do, no more, no less. We thank you for this opportunity. We love you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.